Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Tonight, we're going to do a writer's table, and currently, it's just me because um, Lady Holder's off being, you know, like an adult with family, and I imagine Jilly is doing the same, so it's just me and a bunch of minions in the chat room. Okay, so... <clears throat> now... Let's look at the questions. And one of our oldest questions and the oldest question in the Ask Me Anything is, um, has there ever been a podcast about writing summaries? And this was written by, this question by Alexandra Lightweight. Um, and no, we've never actually done a full podcast on it. Honestly, that isn't a topic that would cover a full podcast. What I think you need to know about writing a summary is that you need to... Um, um, summaries are kind of like a seduction, like a proper summary is a seduction. You need to, uh, you need to know, you need to give your reader the who, the what, or the who, the why, and the when, and make them ask what, so that when they see your summary, they're utterly fascinated by your concept, and they, and they click on it. And there's honestly nothing worse than seeing I suck at summaries. In the summary field. So don't say that. Um, and also. A whole bunch of questions. In your. <laughs> yeah exactly as. Um, a whole bunch of questions. In your summary is. It's pretentious. <laughs> it's pretentious as fuck. Don't do that. You want to ask maybe one question, but you don't want, I mean, and even then, I mean, it's ridiculous. It can get kind of ridiculous. Um, and you don't want to sound like some seventies, uh, television TV announcer either. Um, so you need to, what I like to do is give my main characters a sentence, give like, you know, give your main character, um, a full sentence. And sometimes that sentence is enough. Especially when it comes to fan fiction. Um, but if you're doing like a novel, you'll want to give um, your main characters um, a couple of sentences each. To describe their circumstances coming into the novel. Um, and you also want to hit the conflict. So, like... And aim for around 40 to 50 words. 40 is good. You know, so you want to give your main character a sentence to to tell your reader where they are when you start. And then if you have two main characters, if you're if you're doing a romance, you'll want to give each um, character in your relationship a a sentence to tell your reader where they are when it starts. If you're doing like a really tiny short story in fan fandom, I think one sentence is often enough just to give your reader the circumstances that you're working with, right? But if you're like going on to a full novel situation, it's important to give your reader the context they need to start. So, yeah, that's my advice on summary. Who, when, and why? So you want to establish your characters, your setting, and the why of your story. Why does the reader want to read your story? Why did you write this story? But 
I caution you to be careful and not make the mistake of pitching your story versus summarizing your story. There is a format in um, in professional writing where you are pitching a story to an editor or to a publisher or even to like a review magazine to, you know, to encourage them to review it. And that kind of pitch has a, sp has a specific audience that can actually be off-putting to the reader, to the average reader, because that's not what they want to see. They don't want to know about your market or about your um, the the character archetype that you're using. They want to know what your story is about. They want the meat. They they want to know what they're going to get, um, and then they expect you to to deliver on that promise you make in your summary. So that's important. The, the fact of the matter is, is the one reason why you should not ask questions in your summary is that as the author, you should have the answers. Your readers have questions and you have the answers. So you should always act like you know what you're talking about, even when you don't. Fake it till you make it. And that's all I gotta say about that. Let's see. Cleaning, cleaning, cleaning. Um... Okay, CMDS1025 asks, when you're casting characters, how do you pick the actors to portray them? Are they always actors? Um, so character casting. For me, uh, when I am making an original character, one of the first things I think about, um, you know, beyond their, um, their role in the story, uh, and their role in the story helps you develop a lot of things, like where do they come from? Um, what, how old are they? What's a reasonable age for them to be? Um, it would not be reasonable for you to come across an 18 year old, uh, curse breaker who has 25 years of experience. That'd be ridiculous. So if you need a really established curse breaker, say in a Harry Potter fic, you're not going to pick Bill Weasley because he's not going to have enough experience. Um, Granted, he's not 18, I think, in canon when it starts. But you, but, you, but you see what I mean. When you need someone with a great deal of experience to come into a curse-breaking situation for your characters, Bill Weasley isn't your obvious choice. He doesn't have enough experience. Theoretically, depending on the time period, he might not even have a mastery yet. So you need to pick out, like what you need your character to be uh what's a good age what's a what's a reasonable age for your character to be and then look at the actors and actresses and models that you um are familiar with um that you're comfortable with that you can see and hear moving in a scene and this is super important and one of the things i think that some people fail fail to really pay attention to when it comes to um, creating original characters. If you can't see and hear your character moving, you're not ready to write them. If you don't know what they sound like, if you don't know how they're moving, if you don't know what their mannerisms are and their pattern of speech, which is why I think it's also a good idea when you're first starting to create original characters that you use actors you're familiar with or that you can look up on YouTube and watch perform because it gives you um, a foundation to start on. You know how they sound. You know how they move. You, 
it's 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 easier to picture them in your scenes and that full picture is you need that when you're writing i mean i think eventually you'll be able to do that wholesale in your head and make up a whole person without having to depend on those kinds of tricks to get you there but before you get there you need that it's kind of a crutch and it's not a crutch that you should shy away from because it's a building tool and it helps you get there. And I use actors a lot when I'm, and I, I cast for my readers. I don't actually need that anymore for myself as a writer, but I've been writing for 35, 33 years, 33 years. This Christmas actually is when I, well, no, probably earlier in the year, um, but yeah, 33 years. So because of that, you know, but I, I didn't start out that way. Rebel, go in the corner. For fuck's sake. Are you serious right now? Anyways. I can't. I can't believe you. Anyways. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I mean, because while... Rebel might have been two when I was 12 for starting my first novel. Margaret wasn't even a twinkle in her daddy's eye. <laughs> so. <laughs> I could have given birth to, Bar to, to Margaret. So. <laughs> which isn't quite the same. Anyways. So. With experience, you won't have to depend on finding an actor to fill this role in your head. But there's absolutely nothing wrong with doing that for your own private benefit. I, I mean, it's, I mean it's, a, it's a valuable tool to put in your toolbox. Because allowing yourself this, this crutch now will make it easier to create characters wholesale in the future. You will stop depending on it. But if you're still doing it 10 years from now, that is your business and nobody else's. If it gets you there, it gets you there. Whether it's a temporary solution to this stumbling block in creating original characters, or if it's just a tool you stick in your box and you use till the day you die, that is your business and nobody else's. So... But yeah, character casting is, um, it's beneficial for you. It's beneficial for the reader. It gives readers um, something to visualize, which they really enjoy. And, and it also can really endear a character to your audience if they have a, if they have, if, if they have an actor's face to stick on it. I think one of the reasons why um, Matt Shepard in, in um, what might have been became so instantly popular was because of the casting, which I let my readers do. I'd already had a full character profile and bio for Matt. I didn't need casting, but my readers were really, really invested in casting him. So I let them do a casting couch and then I had to kind of go back and tweak the character to fit their choice. So, but it, but it wasn't, you know, I was totally prepared to do that because, um, because frankly, if I, if I had cast, um, I don't know that I would have picked Jensen Ackles personally. I don't remember even who was my favorite during that casting couch, but I don't think it was Jensen Ackles. No, 
I mean, Dylan O'Brien didn't even, I mean, he existed, but he wasn't on my radar. No, I mean, not even. No, I, no, he's not a good fit for a shepherd. Um, the thing is, is I can't see anybody else in it now. So it would be hard to pick somebody else. It would feel like it'd be weird. Like, no. <laughs> it's like, no. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> but. Again, this is, you know, it's a personal choice, but I think that um, putting this tool in your box is, there's nothing wrong with it. If it gets you through and it pushes and it allows you to, to continue to create and to write, then it's your business. Some people really enjoy fan casting and some don't. When I and sometimes headcanon just kind of blooms for you. When I was casting for all the world for for readers, I was like, so I went over to Google because I couldn't figure out who I wanted to be Mahal, right? So I went over to Google and I put actors with beards in Google. And one of the first images that popped up was Jason Momoa, and I was like, holy shit, there's Mahal, <laughs> and it was just like instant headcanon, instant. Headcanon was formed. <laughs> it was just like Jason Momoa is Mahal. And what? I mean, what? Jason Momoa. I mean, and it was just like a done deal. And I will never see anybody else in that in that role in my head. And it, it's not just about his attractiveness. And he is a very attractive person. I mean, there's no way getting around the fact that Jason Momoa is beautiful, right? And he's physically very fit. But there's something about his um, his personality and his, um, his sense of humor and his, um, I don't know, there, it's just like, I was like, yes. Um, Yovana, I picked um, Bella Hadid. She's a model. Um, and I I honestly picked her based purely on um her aesthetic because I just thought she was beautiful. I thought there we go. But there's something about J Jason Momoa that really um speaks to me in the role of Mahal. And it really I mean, he's beautiful, yes, but that that wasn't there's there's just something about him. And I was like, yes, who that that is that is the choice that I'm making. Boom, done, headcanon established to never be changed <laughs> and sometimes headcanon does that to you and it's perfectly okay so character casting um lady holder i asked you earlier but you were not in the um um podcast at the time uh, if you were still with your family okay so cmds also asked um if Minerva had to go back in time to give Harry Potter a better life, what canon character would you send back with her? Dobby. Because if anybody needs a hit minion in that situation, it's Minerva. Because, I mean, you, know, you could pick a lot of different characters, but I would pick Dobby. Um, I would not pick Winky. Winky is actually in canon. Well, this is a canon circumstance, right? In canon, Winky is very attached to the Crouch family. Um, and I wouldn't... There would be a lot of uh, work to do on Winky's character. But Dobby? 
from the moment we meet him, is very dedicated to Harry Potter. So I think that that would be less amount of work you would have to do. Minerva wouldn't have to convince Dobby. I mean, because Dobby would be like, hell yes! <laughs> I am in! Let's go! <laughs> Let's go, Miss Kitty! <laughs> Professor Kitty? <laughs> Whatever. I think he'd be all in 110%. And also because he's so dedicated to Harry Potter. Um, and he is very rebellious um in his own little way that i think that if he thought that minerva was the best chance to give harry potter the best possible life he would be all in on doing whatever she needed to be done so yeah i'd pick dobby he'd be my choice oh leo we got presents so i answered all those questions Nevi asks, I have a hard time focusing sometimes because I reread it and I feel like I need to always change the story and I've rewritten my story like three times now. So, okay. So here's the thing about micro editing. This is something that we all do. And I think that one of the things that sprints help do is to prevent you from micro editing because you get into a rhythm of writing in that 20 minutes and you don't want to waste your time because you only got 20 minutes to do it. And so it's like it creates this mindset for you where you don't, I mean, if you give yourself some discipline looking at you, um, that you don't allow yourself to micro edit because that retards your um, productivity. Um, and I don't allow myself to reread or micro edit during sprinting. I don't backspace. I don't spell check. I have grammar and spell check turned off. Of course, that's always turned off because that's just distracting bullshit. Um, you can't edit till you got it down. So, so, so get it down. Uh, but you need to not do those things in sprints because it slows you down. And so getting yourself into a sprint mindset would actually be very good for you when it comes to, um, and giving yourself rules and boundaries. Um, but if you're not someone who can give yourself rules and boundaries and actually follow through with them, I'm not sure what to tell you. So, but I mean, you need those boundaries. You need to be able to tell yourself, okay, I'm not going to self-edit. I'm not going to micro-edit. I'm going to write for the next 30 minutes or I'm going to write for the next hour or whatever, how much time you have to write um, and then do that so that it becomes, and one of the things that we're talking about um, a lot in um, uh, going forward into 2020 um, is about uh, habitual writing. And giving your and creating um, discipline um, in your craft. If you like, for me, if I'm in a mood to edit and nitpick something, then that's not my writing time, and I don't call it that. If I'm going to nitpick and edit something, I'm going to call it editing. Okay, I'm going to go in. I'm going to edit this for a little while and then move on. And so, if you if you separate your time out and you say, okay, this is my editing time. This is my writing time. I'm going to be reading here. This is my reading day. I'm going to read here, whether it's my stuff or other people's stuff. 
and try to segment out your time and then stick to that schedule. Because TK Benjamin's right. Writing is writing time is precious and you shouldn't mistreat it. Got that one. I'm deleting questions as I answer them. So um Angelica and Sandy says, one of the things I struggled with in most of my nano planning was the military rankings for my made-up SGC teams. Could you give some pointers? I think it's actually important um, in your fan fiction not to model your, like, your fictional Stargate teams after SG-1. Because the rank situation in SG-1 was ridiculous. And it got more ridiculous when Ka when Cameron Mitchell joined the team and there were two colonels. I think in all honesty, when I I feel like Carter should have never been on the same team with Jack O'Neill. I mean, even as a captain. But definitely by the time she was a major, she should have had her own team. That doesn't make any sense. And honestly, it was an insult to her to bring Cameron Mitchell in and put him on SG-1 when really, realistically, that team should have been hers. That should have been her command. Is that misogyny? I don't know. But it's ridiculous. So I, I think that it would be better to look at the compositions of, say, like a SEAL team. Like just what you can find on the internet about how a SEAL team is constructed, um, and base your your ranks and your team structure on a fire team with the SEALs. I mean, that's what I do, and I, that's what makes sense to me. Um, it because what they do is ridiculous. But one of the things that we can do in fandom that they don't do on shows is uh, make better choices. Oh my good. Oh my goodness, Elspeth. You wrote a long ass question. Elspeth says, I'm in the midst of plotting an epic that has been on my back burner, which spans a wide array of time. I've been breaking up into full story into smaller chunks, embracing time skips as well as episode novella format, but I'm still worried about pacing and transitioning from periods of action to quieter moments. Sometimes I read stories with dates or time logging. Um and it feels clunky as I read. Sometimes I have to mentally make a timeline to figure out what the author is trying to convey with time logging. And I don't want to do that. Do you have any advice? I really need to figure this out. So be part of my story structure as I build my plot. Um, I think that pacing is the biggest stumbling block that a writer encounters. Uh, and time skips are uh, good for that. But they can also be detrimental to your character development and to your um, world building. One of the more interesting pieces of one of the most interesting devices I ever used to create pace was Miko Zelenka's pregnancy in the Lantian Legacy. Because in the beginning of the novel, you find out she's barely pregnant. I mean, she's she's pregnant enough to show up on a lifetime detector because they had it turned up too high. But otherwise, no, they would never have known she was pregnant because she wasn't even having symptoms yet. And so by the time they leave that planet, she's so far along that Carson Beckett didn't want her on the city during liftoff. 
for fear that she might fall. So they took her into orbit in a jumper because they didn't want her to have a, a fall during the, um, during the transition of the city being on the water and then being into space. And then they bring her back into the city on the jumper. Um, and she was born shortly after they landed on their new planet. So using Miko's pregnancy was a good way to kind of let the reader know how they were progressing through um, their their changes and their movement and their growth and the and the ships coming into the to the city. And it was just that was the method I chose to demonstrate pace and time passing through that story. So that's a very unique situation device to use. And so <laughs> I think it's important. Like another way to do it is to like, uh, well, the, one of the ways it's done Harry Potter is the school year and how it's broken up with, um, you know, Halloween and Yule and, um, and Easter. So using holidays, um, would be another way to demonstrate how your characters are moving through a year. So I what you want to establish with pace um is that you there's a <laughs> there's like a fine line between moving a pace and a slow crawl and also going too fast. Like that like like you're in this you're in this nexus of of terror, basically. And okay, I'm going too fast. I'm going too slow. I'm boring the shit out of my reader. Um, I went too fast with that. My reader has no idea where I'm where I'm going or where I'm at or how I got here. And so, for me, one of the ways I control pace is having a central character that moves my plot points through. Like if you if you read all the world, um, that character is Ragnarok. He's moving everything apace. He is um, deciding what happens and when it happens. He is he is the structure of the entire story going forward. I do often tie pacing to POV because it allows you to control. Uh, not only pacing, but characterization. And it allows you to give your character and your reader a break. Like when your character is going full force, boom, 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 boom. You will realize a lot faster that your character needs a break before you realize that your pace is too fast. If your pace is wonky, it very well could be because you have four to seven POVs. I mean, because pacing is linear and POVs are not. I mean, you could have four scenes from four different characters taking place in the same exact time period. That is zero for your pace. I mean, you're standing still, you're stagnating. If you're having the same hour take place for four different characters and you're describing it for your reader, you're not moving. And that is one of the reasons why I think fantasy novels drag is because they have so many POVs and you can spend 
two or three chapters on the same fucking day because there are four different characters that have a POV or six different characters, depending on Tolkien. Um, and it's just like, are you serious right now? Because I don't even know what day it is now. Is it, is it still Monday? I don't know. Is it Monday? What do you mean it's Friday? It can't be Friday. <laughs> it was Monday. <laughs> All this shit happened on Monday. You know, so <laughs> technically Tuesday. <laughs> right. So having a central character with a central POV, even if, you know, see, in All the World, there are four POVs. But because Ragnarok is my central character, and he is doing the linear thrust through my plot, I don't stop. So you don't see scenes, like you never saw the scene where Harry and Hermione first went to Agarty, and you don't see their cottage the first time that they see it, but you know that happened because Ragnarok sent them there, right? But then you see them later in their cottage doing their little thing, you know, planning a gnome rebellion. Um, <laughs> so Ragnarok kept them moving and I didn't slow down to show you events that serve no purpose in the plot. But even if your characters aren't, I mean, like one of the cardinal sins, I think, is having a scene told from four different points of view back to back to back to back to back. Like, what? No. But it's just as bad if you have four characters going to the same hour in different places. Like, if you have a character in Hogsmeade, and you have a character in London, and you have a character at Hogwarts, and then you have a character fighting for their life in the Dark Forest, and it's happening all at the same time, and you're going to show me all four of these scenes? I don't need all four of these scenes. I literally don't need them. What I need is a central character fighting for his life in the dark forest, meeting back up with the three friends that were in all these various places and finding out what happened to them through conversation while he explains how he had to fight a pitch battle against the giant spider. That, that, that's what I need. And I think that, um, in, especially in fandom, this is actually something that's really easy to fall into a trap of, is that you want to tell your reader what what every single person is doing in your story like if you have like it, it's just that it's just not realistic and it's not good storytelling and you need to be able to demonstrate to your reader that even though these characters aren't showing up on scene they're still living their life outside of the scenes that you're showing that time is moving that they're not um stagnant waiting to get attention of the camera again that life moves on around your your central character people are doing things they're having meals they're sleeping they're they're having conversations that your main character isn't privy to uh and that is um a level of realism that can be difficult to insert into your narrative. And it's one of the things I think you definitely need to put in your toolbox that you need to work on is demonstrating that you're not staging a, a play and that things are happening off scene. And just because your reader didn't see it doesn't mean it didn't happen. And you have a few readers 
few very literal readers who assume that if they did not see it happen, it didn't happen. So I've got a few readers who are probably deeply concerned about the fact that none of my characters go to the bathroom. Because that they assume because they didn't see it, it didn't happen. But delving into those non-essential scenes that do not further your plot, that do not further your characterization, um, just destroy your pace. No one wants to see that, but some people assume if they don't see it, it doesn't happen. Like, if you have some a character ref refer to a conversation that they had in the past, you'll have a reader go, well, I didn't see that conversation. Can I see that conversation? What happened during that conversation? Who was there? What was said? Why couldn't I see that? That was important. No, it wasn't. It was not important. <laughs> That's why it wasn't on screen. I didn't actually need to show you that scene. It was not important. You don't see every meal my characters eat because they're not important. And so in your structure of your story, picking out scenes that move your story forward, being selective in what you show your reader, not tell your reader, but show your reader is super important. You don't need to know. Um, your reader doesn't need to know that Harry Potter wore green pajamas to bed. What they, what they need to know is that he got a good night's sleep. He woke up and he's about to tackle his day like a boss. That's what, the, that's what they need to know. They don't need to know the minutia of your character's life. They need to see your character accomplishing their goals. And it's also, you know, there's something someone brought up in the, about establishing a routine. Okay, yes, a routine is important, but you don't want to get down in the minutia of that. You don't want to describe your your character getting up, undressing from their pajamas, going into the bathroom, Getting, you're turning the shower on, uh, getting in the shower, washing their body, washing their hair, jerking off, um, which I assume most men do in the shower. <laughs> I could be wrong. I don't know. Leave me with my fantasy, okay? Um, so, getting out, drying off, drying the hair, styling the hair, brushing their teeth, shaving, using shaving. You don't need to, all these little details are ridiculous. They're ridiculous and they are a they are a violation of word economics in the extreme. Um it's just I will skip that shit faster than anything. I hope you never tell me anything important in the midst of the toothbrushing and the <laughs> and the aftershave because I'm going to miss it. <laughs> I mean, really honestly, um you should be able to tell your reader that your character got up, got showered, got dressed, and had a meal going out the door in a paragraph. A single paragraph. It doesn't need to be 10. And if, and if I see a character being shaved, it better be because they have some kind of fetish for their partner shaving them. I'm just saying. Otherwise, I don't give a fuck and I don't care. And I'll... Uh, on this note, I honestly don't care to know 
how much prep is involved in anal sex. I realized anal sex cannot be as spontaneous as it is in fiction. That's why it's called a fantasy. I don't care to know about the mechanics of being ready to receive a penis in your ass. I know those mechanics. I don't want to read about them. Every single time you write a sex scene. Now, there are some people who actually have a kink for enemas. I'm not one of them. I don't need to know about it. I also don't need to know what happens afterwards. Because I'm a lady, and I actually know what happens when you put semen in an orifice. Um, I realize it comes out. I don't need a... I don't need a, a I don't need a blow by blow of this experience. Okay. No one does. No one. <laughs> just, just So th these actually these this minutia is a, a way you destroy pace. You're you're giving your reader information they absolutely 100% do not need. It is unimportant what color Harry's boxers are. No one gives a shit. No one reasonable gives a shit. Okay? I don't need to know about an evacuating enema. You're absolutely right. It's just, there's just some things that we don't need to know. That is utterly unimportant. It destroys your pace. It becomes an issue of telling versus showing. And yes, we will do a whole podcast on that. I'll make a note. Because that's actually a pretty big skill to put in your toolbox. It, it's, it's one of the things that I see um, that's a real uh, problem in fandom. And one of the things about fandom is that when one writer does something, and we've discussed this before, and this is how tropes become what they are, is that other writers start doing it too. And the next thing you know, you're reading your work from six years ago, and you find a one-sided conversation written in the wrong POV, and you're like, oh my god, what's the fuck, Kira? What was wrong with you? Everything was wrong with you. And you, you must have read like 10 billion NCIS stories that week. And look what you did in the middle of you, you look what you did. <laughs> and I'm not over it yet. I haven't fixed it yet either. Cause I'm lazy. <laughs> now there is a segment of erotica readers who actually have a kink for bodily functions of, of a sort that I'm not going to discuss on this podcast, but unless you're writing for that audience, we don't, it, it, your audience doesn't need to know. I mean, they, they just don't. But that kind of minutia can drag, drag your pace down. What could, so extra POVs drive your pace down. Um, extraneous facts drive your pace um, to a standstill. Um, sometimes an unnecessary subplot can totally throw your pace off. Especially if the subplot is happening faster than the rest of your plot and it's unrealistic. Like if you give your character an unsurmountable um, problem as a side plot, 
you can grind your whole story to a stop. And I think that's what happens a lot of times with people who are doing works in progress in public is that this is this is their version of writing themselves into a hole or writing themselves into a corner and they don't know how to get out because they slapped a subplot in here in, in into their story that is insurmountable and they don't know how to get out of it. They didn't even know how they got here and now their pace is destroyed and the story is a mess. And it, it's just a dumpster fire. And so um, watch your subplots, watch your POVs, and avoid extraneous details because they don't serve you and they just, they're boring. I don't care if Harry Potter brushed his teeth for two minutes or 10 minutes or if he used a spell or if he doesn't like the spell because it tastes funny. I don't, I don't care. <laughs> If a subplot drowns a plot, then it was a submarine plot. Okay, I'll 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 go with that. <laughs> and you don't want a submarine plot. I think that um, episode formats and novellas are actually a good way to um, limit yourself uh, as far as like uh, subplots go. So I highly recommend that you try that. Um, to, you know, if you stumble across an idea that really works for an episode format, try it. Try it out because it's actually very um, liberating to do an episode series. It's also um, you. It's very rewarding to to finish a whole bunch of little works and like, yeah, I did that. <laughs> I accomplished all that. Look, look what I did. <laughs> it's just you know, and sometimes you need that ego boost to be able to say that you finished this. Da 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 da. Finished. Da ba boom. Bada boom. And if you didn't get that bottom boom, you don't deserve to get that bottom boom. Okay, Shadow Light Cock asked, so when you moved out past your canon, like say post seven of Harry Potter, post book seven of Harry Potter, how do you develop a conflict out of whole cloth? Do you have a strategy you can share for coming up with a new villain or conflict? Um, because I came into fandom already having written a lot of original works, create finding conflict or establishing conflict isn't something that is ever a problem for me uh and most of the time i have my conflict going into my plotting phrase because it's like because i keep because i ask myself a question like what if like, you know, say for instance with um, courting Hermione Granger, which takes place book, you know, book seven in an alternate universe, and it's you know, what if Hermione Granger did not go to Hogwarts or did not stay at Hogwarts? How would things have been different? Um, and what would it be like if if Harry Potter was raised by Sirius Black? And it, uh, your, your your conflict is also shaped by your genre because. In a romance, a lot of times your conflict is merely getting your characters together. Like what obstacle is standing in the way of them of, of them coming together as a couple? And if um, it's a mystery, then solving the mystery is is the um, major point of your story, the conflict. Um, if it's you know like a suspense, so you know your genre can help shape your conflict faster than anything else. And you don't have to have a bad guy. A villain is not required. And not all protagonists are villains. 
Sometimes you can have an uh, an, uh, an antagonist. Sometimes you can have a protagonist and an antagonist, and the antagonist is not a villain. Um, they're just an obstacle in your character's way. So they're not always a bad guy, the antagonist. Sorry about that. Um, is not always a bad guy. They're, they're not always this evil monster, and they don't have to be. But sometimes your conflict merely, um, sometimes your conflict isn't even a person. It can be um, a natural disaster or um, like in The Unspeakable Plot, the main conflict of The Unspeakable Plot is preventing Tom Riddle from, from destroying magic. But yeah, and sometimes your protagonist is the bad guy for fun. Like in Darkly Lowell, my protagonist, Harry, Draco, and Hermione are the heroes of their own story, but for everybody else, they're villains. And that's all POV. And we've discussed that before. Like in The Wizard of Oz, from Dorothy's POV, she's the hero. But from The Wicked Witch's POV, she's a murdering harlot who stole her inheritance. For no good damn reason. And Glinda's the heifer who enabled her. Because POV is everything. Yeah, murdered her sister and stole her inheritance. So, it's like POV. POV is everything. And we're always the hero of our own work, right? Of our own journey. Voldemort definitely saw, um, saw Harry Potter as villainous. He saw Dumbledore as villainous. He saw anybody who stood in his way as villainous. And he was their victim. Yes, Tom Riddle had a persecution complex. <laughs> but your antagonist doesn't have to be an evil monster. Sometimes they can just be in the way of your character getting the girl. Or, your, or the boy. Or the non-binary non person they want to be with. Whatever they may be, there's just that person standing in the way of them getting their other person, and um, they're not evil, they're just in the way. Fury Nick Fury can absolutely be an antagonist, absolutely, who is, um, in his own way trying to protect Earth. Um, and sometimes some readers and writers find his methods offensive, so you know, it is what it is. Honestly, the only innocent in the MCU is the Hulk. He is a product of circumstances outside of his control. He only manifests to defend himself or Bruce. He is essentially a child. And every decision that's ever been made in his life was made for him. So out of all of the heroes and villains in um, the MCU, the Hulk is the only one who's utterly innocent. Anyways. <clears throat> but, so, finding finding conflict. I think, I think that if you're having a struggle with finding conflict, that you need to look at your genre and look at the questions that you're asking yourself. Uh, what positions are your characters in when you start your story? Uh, what stands in their way of their goals? Because GMC like POV is everything. Goals, motivation, and conflict. And you get your conflict from your goals and your motiv motivations. What is motivating your character and what is their goal? What stands in the way of their goal? What is building their motivations? 
So if you dissect some of the more popular um, stories that you see and you look at, okay, what is Harry Potter's motivation? What is What stands in the way of his goals? Because whatever stands in the way of his goal is your conflict. Now, this requires some ripple management. Because in fandom, when you're making a decision about what your character is going to be doing, you have to look at the ripples and the consequences of your decisions. And this decision tree can impact the creation of conflict. Does that make sense? I hope so. They're not actually in the chat room, I don't think so. Yeah, they are. Yeah, they are. You're in the chat room. Did that, was that helpful? Well, you're in the podcast audio. I'm not sure if you're actually in the chat room. <laughs> yeah, don't, yeah, pay attention to your ripples and don't be like other, you know, don't, don't act like you're writing a TV show where you get paid whether it makes sense or not. <laughs> but I do think if you're struggling with conflict, um, the best way to, to, to find your conflict is to focus on the goals of your character and your character's motivations, because those goals don't come wholesale from nowhere. And always, always there's going to be some kind of situation or um, a decision somebody else has made or whatever that will help you establish conflict in your story. So I hope that answered your question, Shadow. From November. <laughs> Okay, correct question. Ellie says, you've mentioned that you have a lot of works in progress that you haven't touched in a while. Do you have any stories that you just hit a wall on and said, nope, this one is not happening? If so, do you trash it, label it a bad seed, have it never in a million years folder? How do you get it out of your headspace? Oh, Ellie. I, you know... We discussed it when on the podcast and we and we added it all up and I have 1.9 million words in progress ish um and I have 127 works in progress in fandom that does not include my original work so here's the thing I don't put them out of my head um and I don't I mean, sometimes, like, I'll have, like, a scrap file where I've pulled material out of something that I'm working on and dropped it into a scrap file for later because I might need those words. Um, and that, and, you know, and I put those in my junk folder. Like, I, like I have a whole, like, I have probably, I don't know, 10,000 words of Lantean Legacy scrap. I mean, because it just doesn't work for what I want to do. But I might need those words later. I don't, and so I'm like a hoarder. I'm like hoarding. I'm, I'm hoarding words that don't work. Uh, but sometimes, like you know, um, there's nothing in my car in my works progress folder that um, can't be finished, because I don't consider any piece of work I've ever done unfixable. Yes, yeah, sometimes you can you can take a project apart and and it's gonna hurt, like it, it's just. Oh, this is going to be really painful and a whole lot of work. But I don't have anything in my works in progress folder that I consider a lost cause. Because the biggest obstacle is writing it and fixing it is cake compared, comparatively speaking. 
So there are works like we talked about it the other night when we were we were in one of the Discord groups talking about works in progress. And my oldest works in progress are hold on. I wrote it down. I wrote it down. Okay. My oldest works in progress are okay. Forget Me Not, which is a Sentinel story, which I started in 2008 in November. And then my Dr. Shepard AU, which I started in January of 2009. Now, when I say I started these stories, that means I already have zero drafts for all this work. All of my works in progress have zero drafts. And those zero drafts, which I don't include in my works in progress word count, can be anywhere from 5,000 to 10,000 words each. So for every for every single 127 of my works in progress, I have a completed zero draft for. Um, and let's say on average that there's 6,000 words. So I have 762,000 words of zero draft. Now I have some stuff from the 80s and 90s. <laughs> but a lot of that's on paper. So that doesn't really count. Um, as far as like, you know, current works in progress. Now, the Then I have one called More Than Anything, um, which is my, actually, it's my big gay love in Canada story. And I started that one in, eight, in August of 2008. Um, I have them separate. I have all my works in progress separated by fandom. And in some cases, genre. Like, especially in Harry Potter, where I have a lot of um, works in progress. Um, they are separated by like trope, like time travel, um, alternate universe. Um, hold on. I'm going to go over there. and So alternate universe, post Hogwarts, time travel, war stories. Um, so I have them separated out into my favorite tropes, like, you know, so that it's just easier to, to find what I'm looking for. When I have a crossover, most of the time the crossover takes specifically in one world or the other, and I put them in that one. So, like, for Small Magic, Small Magic isn't in my Harry Potter folder, it's in my Hobbit folder. Because it takes predominantly on our, um, place on Middle Earth, so it doesn't need to be in my Harry Potter folder. Um, when it comes to something like Hawaii Five-O, I actually have a folder called Hawaii Five-O-NCIS, because... I mean, <laughs> they're all in the same verse anyway. Uh, but, um, but like for Stargate, because I have mine separated out into works in progress and then by series and then whether it's posted or not. So it just depends on the fandom and what I've got going on in it and um, how many works in progress I've got. But my works in progress folder for Harry Potter is ridiculous. Is ridiculous, but I always file my crossovers in the predominant fandom, and there's always a predominant fandom in my crossovers. Like all of my Stargate Sentinel work is in my Stargate folder, obviously. So now I do have a folder called Multiple Fandoms. Like if I have a whole bunch of um, different fix that really don't belong in one fandom or another. Like, um, that's where I set my Terminator story and where I'll stick my alien story from, from over the summer. Um, because I don't have a lot of work on them. 
Um, and I haven't collected a lot of, you know, photos or anything like that. So there's no point in, you know, really uh, digging too deep into the filing system on that. But I don't trash anything, Ellie. Um, I'm a word hoarder. I, I keep all my words. It's very important to keep all your words because you might need them later. No, because I'm a plotter and my words don't do anything without my permission. And neither do my characters because that's ridiculous. <laughs> okay. Rogue asks, um, I'm going to skip the trope gift, um, um suggestions because that's not questions. How do you get back into writing after almost a month of not writing? Do it. I mean, there's no, um, there's no trick to this. You just got to sit your butt down in a seat and start writing because action precedes motivation. And the more you do, the more you'll want to do. So you need to stop saying you can't write and start saying you're going to write. Then sit down, put your butt in a seat, open up a document and start writing. I mean, whether you're doing sprints or or not, just, just sit your butt down and start writing. That's procrastination. Don't put maybe in front of it. Give yourself a date. Say, I'm going to start writing on January 2nd, 2020. Or I'm going to start writing on December 26, 2019. And I'm going to write an hour every day. Because this is craft discipline. And that's what, that's what you got to do. Otherwise, you are constantly pushing it off. Saying, oh, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it tomorrow. And that kind of procrastination is not only a motivation killer, it's also a creativity killer. And this is when you fall into that trap of pretending that you have writer's block. Well, you don't actually have writer's block because it doesn't exist. What does exist is a complete and utter lack of desire to write. That you have you have meandered your way into this desire not to write. And the pretense of labeling a like writer's block means you don't have to own the problem. And that's what it is. And I understand procrastination and depression. I was, I've been diagnosed with depression for 20 years. Um, I am clinically depressed. I take medication for it. Um, I battle it every day. Um, sometimes getting out of bed is like, even if I ignore like the, the moderate to severe joint pain that I'm currently experiencing, sometimes getting out of bed is the most difficult thing I do. And sometimes like I'll, I'll go into the kitchen and like there'll be dishes in my sink and I'll, I'll just dishes in my sink will be so stressful that it's like you just want to cry. And it's ridiculous and you feel dumb. And it's just, it's like, and sometimes, you know, you get up and you're, and you're okay and you take a shower and then you're exhausted. Like you've used all your spoons on a shower. And then you're done. And everything else that you look at during your day looks completely overwhelming. You don't want to open your email. Facebook causes you anxiety. You know, it's just like, it's just, oh, it is like the, it is like, 
You have to go to the grocery store, but it's the last thing on earth that you possibly want to do because there are going to be people there. And, but thank God they have a self-checkout so you don't have to talk to anybody. You, know, you can put your headphones on. And I do that. I put my, my, I put my earbuds in and I go to Kroger or Target where they have self-checkout. And I avoid people and I don't talk to people. And I, I get my stuff and I put it in my bags and I put it in my cart. And I don't talk to people. I don't want to answer questions. I don't want to tell you I didn't find everything I needed because your store is really unorganized and it drove me nuts and the app wasn't working and I almost had an anxiety attack in the meat department so I'm done for the day and I'm going home. I get it. But what I have learned to do is to treat my writing like a refuge. And when I am writing, I am in control and I am powerful and I decide what happens. I decide when it happens. And that acknowledging how important that level of control is for me was like super important to my mental health. And it's really beneficial. So earlier we talked about how writing time is precious. Well, when you're battling something like anxiety or depression, um, your hobby or the thing that you do every day, whether it's writing or knitting or playing a game, can be extremely important to your mental health. And that is precious. Sometimes you need an hour to yourself with your headphones on and reading something that you really, 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 really loved because it calms you down and makes everything seem reasonable again. And it makes the world feel smaller because sometimes the world feels so huge. And there are so many people in it. And there's so, there's so much expectation on you for existing. Like you owe people around you for existing. Does that make, and so that, that kind of cycle can really fuck you up and it can really fuck up your creativity if you don't guard it like it's precious. So one of the things that I don't let procrastination do is um, intrude on my writing space. And you don't get here overnight. Like I said, I was diagnosed 20 years ago. Um, and every day it's a battle. Every day it's a fight, even with medication. You should have asked her if she ever put her phone down. Um, because for some people, their computer is is their portal to the world. And it's, um, and it's safe. And they can avoid things that make them upset or nervous or anxious or scared or... And, I think in a world that is so big and so noisy and there are so many people that sometimes um, having a retreat that you can depend on that doesn't surprise you or upset you like a game or your writing is really important. We talked earlier, like years ago, like like a year and a half ago, two years, about how you know people feel about fandom and how they degrade you for being in fandom and how you're allowed to be happy you're allowed that 
And if fandom makes you happy, you're 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 allowed to say that. And then you're allowed to ask them why why do you degrade this thing that makes me happy? Why is it important to you that I not be happy? And frankly, these are people that you don't want to be around. They don't deserve to be in your space. Much less in your safe space. Um, it, you know, you said, someone said earlier about the quote from Carol, Joyce Carol Oates about, um, about being interrupted um, is the enemy of writing. And that's very true. Um, and it's not just other people that interrupt you. Sometimes it's you interrupting you. Sometimes it's um, worry about whether or not you've locked the door or whether or not, or, you know, or it's concern. It's like, it's like anxiety, like, oh, I should be doing this or I should be doing that. And why haven't I done this? And I don't, I shouldn't waste my time. I shouldn't waste my time. So establishing that writing is never a waste of your time. It's huge. It's the biggest thing you'll do for yourself. That when someone says, why are you wasting your time? You know, I'm not wasting my time. Even if you are asking yourself that question, you respond with, no, I'm not wasting my time. And when someone you don't know interrupts you in public, you don't owe them anything. Say it again. You don't owe them anything. You don't owe them politeness. You don't owe them an explanation. You don't even owe them a response. Ignore their ass. Now, as young women, we were taught not to ignore people. To be polite. Well, fuck that shit. Fuck all that shit. You don't owe anyone, not even a man, a response. Just like beauty isn't the price you pay for existing, neither is politeness. You don't owe it to anyone to indulge their curiosity, and you don't owe anyone a face full of makeup, or your hair done, or your shoes matching your purse. You don't owe anybody that shit. The last time somebody asked me if I was going to make money from something I was writing, I asked them if they were going to make money sitting on their ass watching Friends, which is what they were doing at the time. How much money do you make watching Game of Thrones? How much money do you make watching football? Are you broadcasting your game you're playing on Twitch? Is it making you any money? How big is your following? Did you get affiliated yet? Because they assign, a lot of people assign monetary value to things that have no business having a monetary value assigned to them. And they assume if you're working hard for something, um, that you should only work hard for something if it gives you money because that's the only value they see in anything 
They don't see value in personal satisfaction or personal pleasure or um, just the the overwhelming um, sense of accomplishment you get for finishing something. And living in a in, in in a world that is motivated entirely by money is really disheartening. Yes, you need money to eat. I get it. Um, but creating for money is soul crushing. So even if you publish professionally, never do it for money. I mean, yeah, take the money they give you, but never make that the goal because it'll just. It'll just break your heart. Because it broke mine. So Kaya says, how do you go back to something that you left off on five or ten years ago? There is, you know, I mean, like I said, my oldest works in progress is um, from 2008. And I actually opened it up last year and wrote like 500 words on it. And I was like, why? <laughs> why did I do that? It's because I opened it up to read it. Because I go through phases. Um, uh, I go through phases where I will read through all my old works in progress. I mean, I mean, every single one, right? And it's just like, and sometimes I'll see something that I need to tweak. And the next thing I know, I've written a thousand words. Okay. And then, I'm, then I move on to the next one because it's not quite what I want to work on. Um, but for someone like me who is a plotter who does have zero drafts and I, I do have plot notes for practically everything in my works in progress folder, it's really easy for me to go back and pick something up if I'm inspired by it. And that's where um, I think it's really important in like especially like with with hobby writing and fandom um, that that you just go where your inspiration is. And if you're a pantser, I think that inspiration is even more important. And also being able to look at your older work with a critical eye and figuring out why you lost interest in writing it is it's really beneficial to have seven, eight years out from it because you can see, okay, this is a problem. This this is where my issue was. This was the, the this was the terrible decision I made in my decision tree that I need to rework because this is a ripple that I didn't account for and it threw me off and now I'm not writing it. So and you can go back and work on that. Because hindsight is um, you know. A motherfucker, actually. Uh, but uh, it's also beneficial. But I think it just boils down to motivation and um, and inspiration. And I, I never force myself to work on things that I don't feel inspired by. Outside of challenge. Because sometimes with challenges, it's like, okay, I'm going to push through and get this done. Boom, 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 boom. Um, and then sometimes with challenge, like, when I did all the world, I, I didn't have a moment during the whole month where I was like, Ugh. As, a, as a thought of writing it, I was really deeply, deeply inspired by the whole thing and the characters and um, exploring Harry Potter from a different perspective um, was, was very beneficial to me and very um, inspiring. Because sometimes ideas catch fire and sometimes they don't. And I think it's important to know when to put an idea aside. To put it away in a folder for, for the future at some point. Whether that future ever happens or not. Which is why it's, you know, in fandom it's really detrimental to you to publish works in progress. Um, if you, 
had a habit of putting things aside because then you end up having 25 works in progress on fanfiction.net and I'm not like poking anybody in particular. I haven't actually went over there and counted anybody's works in progress. But what I'm saying is, is if you make a habit of not finishing works in public, it can be um, detrimental to you personally, um, to your story craft and also to your self-confidence. So, but some people have no problems doing a work in progress in public and pushing it all out there. Um, but if Rough Trade's taught me anything, it's taught me that that isn't my preferred method of posting outside of Rough Trade. Rough Trade's a very special circumstance. Um, and it's just not my preferred method to share wholesale every... Because if I... You know, someone accused me an email um, two weeks ago of um, being an attention whore. And I responded back that if I was an attention whore, then all 1.9 million words of my works in progress would be on my site. Because <laughs> I can fucking post almost every goddamn day if I wanted to, if it was for attention. Just saying. <laughs> I mean, I only have a little more published than I do works in progress. <laughs> So, no, it's it's not for attention. It's arrogance. I wrote it. I enjoyed it. I assume other people would want to read it and enjoy it, so I'll put it online. <laughs> That's not attention whore. That's just pure American grade A arrogance. My ego does bite. I think it's important for your ego to bite. Rebel, I'm reading your question, but can you go back to it? And maybe, um, what did you mean? Like the, the question that you wrote at 1007, um, totally details from the original plot line. Do you mean deviates? Because I don't know what you mean by that. I am especially proud of some of, some of my works. Like I am especially proud of all the world, um, which I think is an outstanding, um, story even as a rough draft i am really super proud of courting hermione granger and um both anti and legacy books i'm like boom you're welcome fandom <laughs> did rebel go away does rebel not answer my question i'm gonna skip that one go to the next one and i'll come back to that one okay Edie, did I, did we, did I answer your question basically when we were doing the pacing discussion? Unleash Your Demons is actually one of the more interesting fics I've ever written because it, um, it's so different from everything I've ever written. It just, it just feels very different. Unleash Your Demons. And it could be because it's MCU and I never actually completed an MCU story. Um... Oh, I'm so enamored with Hannibal. It's ridiculous. Lady Holder is never going to forgive me. Okay. Um, how much How much is too much when you're describing a setting of your story, when you're spending a lot of time in there? Like a character's apartment or um, or something like that. Um, I, I think giving the basic details to a reader is all they need. Um, they don't need four paragraphs on the, on the purple curtains. Like, literally, they don't need that. Unless you're specifically writing curtain fic, and even then, four paragraphs is a little much. 
Yeah, Tolkien is too much. Um, but you know, just basic geography, I think, is what is is really important. Here's the thing about John and his bed on Stargate Atlantis. John never bitched about the tiny bed in canon. I mean, clearly it was a prop that was not made to size. It was a mistake and it was a, a bad set choice. But fandom looked at that and thought, no one is getting light on that bed. <laughs> that's ridiculous. Because <laughs> that's a toddler bed. <laughs> that is literally someone's toddler mattress. No one's getting light on this. <laughs> it's ridiculous. And the fandom lost their mind. <laughs> Because he could not lay down on that. I imagine that Joe Flanagan's, he would have like laid down on it and everything from the knees down would have been hanging off the end. That's how ridiculous that set piece was. It was completely ridiculous. It, that was not an adult's bed. Um, and so fandom kind of lost their shit, which is, you know, to be expected. But I think that you need to establish where your characters are, you know, um, in very general terms, where you're not discussing, like, the pile of the shag carpet because no one cares. Um, and, like, the color of the curtains and the fabric used. And, you know, it just... It, it, don't go too far. I'm a very minimal... I'm a, I'm a minimal... This is why I need Jilly. A minimalist writer i prefer to con I, I prefer to concentrate on events versus environment and so i try to establish my setting um in very like minimal terms because it's not important to me like you need to know that um that ragnarok is in his office and that it's a formal setting that's all you need. You can picture that. You don't need me to tell you about his desk chair. Or his big oak desk. Or his lamp. Do you? I mean, I mean, I imagine there are some readers who would really like that shit. But I'm not, I'm, I'm not that writer. And this is part of your author voice, actually. Um, the, the way you move through scenes and the way you construct scenes... Is that th that's part of your author voice? What you include, what you don't include, um, how your characters interact with their environment. This is something that you establish in your writer's voice, so that your readers know exactly what to expect for you when it comes to um, your work. So if you ever post something in the middle of the night, or your character is obsessing over purple curtains, you your readers know you need help, and you're being held hostage. <laughs> Like, holy shit. <laughs> Does anyone have her real name? <laughs> she, we need the cops. <laughs> she posted 5,000 words with John and Rodney buying, um, buying curtains. Where is the suitable punishment for tag abuse? Um, Y'all. Y'all, sometimes AO3 is so frustrating. You go over there and there's like literally, it takes up a whole fucking page. Just, just tags. And like, sometimes you encounter a story that actually has more tags than it does words. And it's just like, 
Are you fucking serious? Are you fucking serious? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If if I ever wrote Ron Weasley as a good guy. No, I actually I do have a fic where Ron is not a bad person. Um it's just because I, you know, didn't sometimes you just get tired of somebody being in your way and Ron Weasley's kind of always in my way. And so you just want to figure out a good way and a different way to get rid of him. <laughs> just just laziness. <laughs> okay. It's just too much work to make him a bad guy sometimes. But in that particular fic, Molly um, is really pissed off because Ginny and Harry aren't together. Um, and Ginny isn't trying to get Harry back because he know she knows that Harry's actually in love with Hermione. And she's keeping that secret for him. Um, so she's not a bad guy either. She's just kind of disappointed. Um, and Ron and Hermione are engaged. And so... Um, but Harry doesn't understand the real circumstances there. And Molly curses Harry with this curse called heart's desire which means he can't get an erection until he confesses his true love and it only works because he was actually in love with somebody and so he has to confess to Hermione that he's in love with her and he's so upset because he he knows it's going to ruin his relationship with Hermione and Ron and um so he takes a job in Italy Goes to the borough, confesses his love, and leaves before anybody can say anything after telling them what Molly had done to him. But um, he goes to Godric's Hollow to see his parents' grave before he leaves Britain. And so Ron and Hermione hunt him down, obviously very upset, but not for the reasons that he thinks. It's because they that he's ruined their arranged marriage because Ron's gay and Hermione wanted a kid and didn't really think that Harry saw her as anything more as a sister. And so <laughs> Ron was hiding from his mom and he planned to have a gay affair. <laughs> and they were going to use artificial insemination to have babies because Hermione couldn't have babies outside of marriage for political reasons because it would ruin her career as a ministry because it's full of crazy-ass, terrible, old, bigoted men. I know, I did. I totally did. I totally wrote an soap opera. Um, and so, you know, yeah. Zero drafted like a motherfucker. And so at the end of my what I've gotten written, Hermione and Harry have parted ways because he's under contract and he has to go to Italy and she's going to start an apprenticeship um at Hogwarts. Um and uh she um and the the last thing that the last thing that I have written is um Molly's Patronus showing up and bitching at Hermione and telling her to come back to the borough because Ron has gone home and confessed to being gay. <laughs> and she's demanding that Hermione come back to the borough and tell Ron and tell Ron that he's not gay. <laughs> because there's a line in it where Ron admitted to Harry that he didn't even know he was gay until Hermione told him. Because of course she had to tell him. <laughs> And he has a big crush on Blaze. <laughs> Anyways, so you don't. Sometimes my works in progress folders has things in it you would not expect. <laughs> Anyways, you know, I mean, I really enjoy bashing Ron Weasley, but sometimes you need something a little different to break it up. <laughs> 
this is why I wrote All the World. Um, because I needed something a little different. I needed a, I needed a new experience. Um, I needed a new... Um, I needed to, to approach the situation from a different angle. You know, just to, just for, just to go at it. That's tag abuse. Tag abuse. Here's the thing about tag abuse on um, AO3. It is so aggravating that sometimes I will not read a story because I get so aggravated having to go through all of the tags to find the ones that really matter. I mean, because, like, I don't want to read through 300 tags to find out you have major character death because you didn't put it in the warning section. Because a lot of them don't. They'll put everything in the tags instead of, like, separating between tags and warnings. And so, like, in the middle of a tag cloud, there will be non-con and character death and domestic violence and child abuse. And I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Anyways, an appropriate punishment for tag abuse. I mean, I would say a spanking, but some of those assholes would enjoy that. But I do think that they should be required to use warnings appropriately on AO3. I think it should be a requirement. But I also think they shouldn't allow underage on there. But that's just me. And I don't mean like two 15-year-olds having sex. I mean like an adult having sex with a child. Because they allow that on AO3. And it's disgusting. Anyways. I think there should be a limit on tags. Absolutely. Um, maybe like 20. I mean, you know, just to give people a little room, you know, but that there definitely should be a, a limit. But when you're describing your environment for your characters and for your reader, just give your reader enough information to know that, you know, they're in a one-story structure or a two-story structure, um, that that they know, like, they know that your character is in an office versus a bedroom versus a living room versus a salon. So when you say a word like salon, in the word like living room, that automatically gives your reader an expectation of what they should expect to see in that room. The salon's a very formal room with probably uncomfortable um, furniture, no television if it's, you know, a, a regular house, not a magical household, but definitely not a magical household. Um, probably a fireplace, um, maybe, maybe, you know, um, some knickknacks, some really expensive lamps, you know, so they're going to fill in the gap for you, right? If you tell them you're in the library, you're going to expect shelves and fluffy chairs and lamps, maybe a ladder for Hannibal to push Will up against, <laughs> just, you know, <laughs> normal stuff. But if you do like like right dark says, if you're doing something like a hidden room or a secret room, or like even like say the chamber of secrets, um, where your reader doesn't have any expectations to fill the you have to fill in the blanks, um, you'll want to give some description. Um, but again, you don't want to dig into the minutiae. Because no one cares what color the rocks are, or the stone floor is. Don't give a shit. I mean, you don't have to spend 10 minutes describing the floor is what I'm getting at. <coughs> a stone floor? Good. We're good. I know. I gotcha. <laughs> Cave walls? Gotcha. Giant statue? Gotcha. So, you know, you want to give enough information for your reader to know what's going on, but not so much that they want to throw your book against the wall or turn their phone off or close their browser and never go to AO3 again. You know. Oh, as. I mean, meat is meat. After it's cooked.
Well, no, it actually really is. So if they were going to taste like a slaughterhouse for eating people, it's like a slaughterhouse for eating a cow. In fact, more likely for a cow, since cows actually go to slaughterhouses and Hannibal's kills do not. I'm just saying. I'm not keep going to the late library. That's ridiculous. So I still have one question left, but Rebel, is Rebel, did that, did Rebel come back? Is Rebel gone? Rebel's here. Um, Because I don't, I'm going to assume what she's saying deviate. How do you cope if a story totally deviates from the original plot line? Like originally going to, to be a basic adventure plus romance, but characters drag you down the murder mystery route. Um, my characters don't because I plot and I zero draft. And while sometimes I will pants in elements like a penguin or a gnome rebellion, um, these are small elements derail yeah um that don't impact the structure of my story uh i am not someone who would allow that to happen because my characters don't do a single damn thing without my permission <laughs> The No Rebellion was probably my favorite part of all the world. I mean, I really enjoyed the ritual too. Um, but what I would say is if you're having a problem staying on task in your story, that you might need to give yourself a little more structure than you currently have. I'm not saying that if you're a pantser, you should go straight on into a plotter and never look back because that's invalidating your process and I would never want to do that. But what I would say is that if you're having a problem... Um, staying in your lane when you're writing a particular thing like you're writing an action adventure with romance um and then suddenly you're in the middle of a murder mystery then you've not given yourself enough structure to be pro to be productive in your creativity because while I want to be creative I also want to be I want to be productive but also as by the time Hannibal would kiss Will Graham. He had already fed Will Graham people. So I don't think they'd know the difference between how one of them tastes versus the other one. Just saying. Um <clears throat> he fed everybody long pig the first chance he got. Absolutely. <laughs> Lady Holder left. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I think that, it, like, if you are deviating too far from your plot, um, or if you're deviating too far from your plan as far as, like, a genre goes, that you might want to give yourself a little bit of structure. Like, I th I'm not asking you to full-on plot if you're not a plotter. Um I know I give a, I know I give Panthers a lot of grief, but your process is just as valid as mine. But if you can't stay on task, then you might want to explore some methods of creating some structure where you do stay on task. So I hope that answered your question and you went away. So I hope you um, come back and hear this podcast later, you know, when I finally publish it. Because I'm only like 400 behind. I'm just kidding. I'm not. Let's see. Hold on. I am. Oh, I have three that I have not edited. So that's not too bad. I'll probably edit them before the new year, though. 
get them all squared away so we start fresh. Well, you know, I saw a meme the other day that said something really interesting. And that it's not so much that everything tastes like chicken. But that considering what chickens and birds came from, that everything actually tastes like dinosaur. Which is also why kind of like alligator tastes like chicken. It's not chicken, it's it's dinosaur. Which is why reptiles and chickens kind of have the same general palate. <laughs> it's the same thing. It's like it's it's not about it's it's the same kind of taste profile. I think crocodiles are um I forget their their period, their time period. Yeah, so chickens are tiny T-Rexes. They go. They went from little arms to wings, little wings. I think so. Too dark. Yeah. But yeah, everything tastes like dinosaurs, not chicken. I'm willing to go with it. I totally believe that geese came from raptors. I'm. I'm. And turkeys too, because turkeys are vicious. Yeah, they have. They have found feathers in some of the, the, the what's its. <laughs> we could be in the Matrix. Everything tastes like tasty wheat. Dark, are you aware that you're chatting in the um, ask me anything question place? Does anybody else have any questions? <laughs> All right. Well, I'll end the podcast right here then. Um, I want to thank everybody for joining me and um, asking questions and filling up almost two hours. I mean, it'll probably be less than that after I edit out all my thoughtful silences. Um, but um, I hope you guys have a beautiful, awesome holiday season and everything you get everything you want from Santa. Um, and the, the new year is safe and fun and not disappointing. Um, so maybe you should just stay home and have cheesecake. <laughs> Anyways, thank you. Good night. <laughs>